And then go and have a seat. Um, <clears throat> before we go uh, to the Lord's uh, word here this morning, uh, a couple of things I want to update uh, you all on. Um, uh, some of you, uh, some of you are on our prayer line, and so let me just kind of uh, tell you a little bit about that. The, the primary way that we uh, communicate prayer needs through our church is through our prayer line. And uh, some of you, this may be news to you. Maybe you've never heard of this. And uh, so if that's something you'd like to be a part of, uh, then what I would just encourage you to do is to contact myself, uh, contact Liz, our administrative assistant, um, in the office and, and get with her on that. And a uh, great way, great way to be praying for the needs of those in our body. Uh, and also, should you have something that you would like us to pray for, that, that's a great way. Uh, for that to go forward. So those of you who have been on the prayer line are familiar with what is going on with Eric Reinhardt. Maybe some of you are not familiar. Uh, last Monday evening, uh, Eric went into the ER. Uh, he had a seizure at about three in the morning and has not uh, awakened since then. Uh, now his vitals are good. They believe, uh, they, they, they don't know um, uh, mentally what uh, things will look like when he uh, does fully regain consciousness. And I should say as of yesterday, uh, he had not regained consciousness. I hadn't heard anything from Cindy, his wife, uh, as of yet. They have three kids, and uh, so in a moment we're going to pray uh, for them. Uh, but uh, uh, certainly a very heavy, heavy uh, thing that is going on, and so we want to be caring for them. And, and as, uh, you know, this has been one of those things you just kind of deal one day at a time. You just think, surely he's going to wake up. Surely he's going to wake up. Well, I mean, we're five days into this now, and all of a sudden you start going, well, what's really going on? Um, but once we uh, really get a grip uh, on that, we'll let you know uh, different ways that you can serve uh, Cindy uh, and their three uh, kids. So I think it'd be wise of us uh, to stop right now. We'll pray for Eric. Uh, we'll pray for our time in the word. And as always, we'll pray for uh, another church in, our, uh, in the area. So why don't you join me as we pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. And uh, God, certainly the news of Eric is uh, heavy. Uh, it's weighty. Uh, it's difficult and hard, and yet there's also a part of us where we realize that we uh, serve the God of the universe that holds all things uh, in his hands, the God who conquered disease, the God who conquered sickness, the God who conquered death. And so when we look at Eric's situation, this is nothing for you. Uh, it may be everything for us, but it's nothing for you. Uh, so God, we come before you, we ask for you to, uh, to intervene, to heal, to restore uh, God, that you would fully restore Eric. God, we pray that you would bring him back to consciousness, that you would uh, have no, there would be no lingering effects from this, that he would have uh, full restoration of sight and vision and speech and, and uh, hearing and all those things, God, that you would restore it all. God, for Cindy and for the kids, we pray that you would hold them up during this time, that you would uh, just allow them to have this supernatural peace that we uh, looked at last week in Philippians 4, that they would recognize and realize that you're, you're close and that you're near. God, you're never distant. You're never far. And in the most difficult of moments where you're nearest, God, would you be at work there? Uh, God, um, as we come to your word, we... We ask that you would come and that you would speak to us, that you'd minister to us, uh, not only for us, but I pray for P Pastor Frank Melizzo and for Mountain Christian Church. I pray for Pastor Frank as he um, preaches this morning that he would preach your word boldly and without apology in a, in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to you and for the people of a Mountain Christian that they would grow up into all things that you desire for them to be. And God, for us, as we open your word here and look at Acts chapter 9 and this great story of Saul's conversion, I pray that you would come and speak to us and minister to us, that uh, your spirit would, would encourage us, that you would bless us through your word. But God, maybe where there's, we need to be challenged that you would do that as well. Uh, so Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you and you alone would come and speak to us now. Uh, we love you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, Acts chapter 9 is uh, where we're going to be here this morning. Acts 9, as you're turning to Acts 9, let me just begin our time by uh, posing this question. Uh, how many of you, how many of you have ever had the chance, ever had the opportunity to uh, see a world-class musician or a world-class uh, arts exhibit or anything of that? Any, anyone ever seen that? Ever, ever had that opportunity? Right? A number of you have had that chance. Uh, my sense is, if you've had that opportunity, uh, as you've walked out, as you've uh, witnessed other people walking out of that 
that most of the people coming out of there weren't talking about the instrument or the paintbrush or the particular things that the artist or the musician used. You were probably talking about the brilliance of the, the artist or the musician themselves. Oftentimes, oftentimes when we, when we see these things, right, we don't walk away going, wow, what a guitar that guy had. And maybe you, you music geeks, maybe a little bit, you're kind of like, no, that was actually pretty cool too, right? But, but what we're wowed by is the brilliance and the mastery of the one who wields those particular items. And so the, the, this morning, we're coming to a text where we're going to see a master composer at work. And it's not Saul, it's not Ananias, it's not anyone else uh, that's named here explicitly. Well, he's named explicitly in the text, but it's God himself. And so get this, get this right here at the outset, that you and I are instruments. You and I are instruments that are to be placed in the hands of the master composer, of the master artist, of the master musician, God himself, and to allow him to do the work. And outside of the hands of God, you and I can do nothing. All right? That's, that, that is exactly what we're going to see here in the story of Saul's conversion. In fact, let me do this. Jump, jump ahead to verse 15. I want you to see this. This is really the emphasis uh, of the text and the emphasis of where we're going uh, here this morning. So let me show it to you here at the outset, uh, just so you don't think I'm making things up here as we go. Uh, verse 15, but the Lord, this is Jesus himself, said, uh, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's talking about an instrument. That Saul was an instrument. Ananias was an instrument. You and I are simply instruments and we're to be placed in uh, the very hands of God. Now sometimes, sometimes we make the mistake of putting a greater emphasis on the instrument and not on the one who plays the instrument. And so this week, actually, Pastor Randy and I were having an interesting conversation. He was telling me about, let me make sure I say this right, um, a Stradivarius violin. Anyone ever heard of that? No. Okay, apparently I don't know anything about music. Okay, Stradivarius violin. Never heard about them, but I mean, like the cream of the crop, the tops in violins and, and upwards of seven figures uh, for one of these items. And we kind of chuckled. We said, what would it look like if you gave me a Stradivarius violin? Right, the, the top instrument that you could possibly play, and it would still sound like a pig is being slaughtered. Okay, because you, you could have the greatest of instruments, but if it's not in the hands of a master musician, it's worthless, it's useless. And it's the same for you and I, and oftentimes we'll make, um, we'll put the emphasis on you and I as the instrument, and what I want us to see this morning in this text is this right here. And see it for what it is, that it's God who's going to take an instrument, he's going to use it brilliantly, and it's going to lead everyone who would read this to a greater sense of God's glory. This story is not about Saul, it's not about Ananias, it's not about you and I, it is ultimately about God and how he moves and works through his people for his glory. All right, so let's just begin to see this here in the text. A title of the message this morning is An Instrument of God. You and I are really framing that in a way to remind us of who we are and, and how it is that God uses us, that we're simply the instrument. God is the, the composer, the musician, the artist. Choose your metaphor. Uh, but notice this first of all in the first nine verses. An instrument of God, an instrument of God accepts the call to follow. An instrument of God accepts the call to follow. So uh, in chapter 8, uh, Luke had been telling us about Philip, and now he comes back to this guy named Saul that he introduced us to at the end of chapter 7, beginning of verse 8. Uh, if you remember then, Saul was uh, pretty fired up about the church in all the wrong ways, and apparently nothing has changed, because check out uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, it says this, uh, But Saul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Pretty fired up. A lot of hatred, a lot of malice uh, towards Jesus, towards the way. In fact, so much so that it, his hatred of Jesus and the church prompts him. Uh, check this out. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And so he seeks out the high priest and he says, hey, can I, can I head over to Damascus? And if we find any uh, who are in uh, the synagogue or in the temple proclaiming or professing to be uh, believers and uh, these followers of Jesus, can, can, can I imprison them and bring them back? And the high priest is like, well, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. And off he goes and look at verse three. Now he went on his way. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Can you see him walking down the road? He and his minions, right? Heading towards Damascus, maybe even with eyes on Damascus and, and, and think about the conversation as they're approaching, right? Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on these guys. I can't stand these guys. Oh, and just the, the hatred and the malice coming out of him. Maybe they're trading stories on just how severely they're going to beat them. And then God intervenes. And as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Uh, no more talking. Okay, right? When God shows up, there's no more talking. There's just falling on your face. And that's exactly what he does. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you doing this to me? Why are you persecuting me? And he said, right, good question to ask here. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now notice, right, an instrument of God accepts the call to follow. We understand that right, an, an instrument can't do anything in and of itself. You understand that? Like, like um, this guitar up here, play. It's lame, right? It can't do it on its own. It needs someone who knows how to play it, and that, that's true for all of us. can't do anything in and of itself. It needs uh, the, the, the musician, the composer to, to play it. In the same way that you and I need God uh, to, to use us in order to be effective. And an instrument of God, first of all, accepts the call to follow. Notice, first of all, in these first five verses, accepts the call to follow Jesus' revelation. Uh, Jesus here is revealing himself to Saul. He makes himself known. Now, I find it interesting that, that at, at some level, Saul probably knew more about Jesus than most people. If, you, if you're, you're going to attack someone, if you're going to get after them, you're, you're going to be uh, somewhat informed about what they're really all about. And so Saul, on some level, probably knew a whole lot about Jesus. But we know that he really didn't know him. He knew very little of him, uh, relationally and personally and intimately, so much so he didn't even know who he was when he uh, showed up. And here Jesus comes and he reveals himself to Saul. And notice, I want you to see this here in the text, when it comes to the revelation of Jesus that Jesus himself is the active agent. He's the one who goes and gets Saul. He's the one that moves close to Saul. Saul wasn't looking for him. Saul wasn't searching for him. In fact, just the opposite. Saul was so passive in his approach to God. The only thing that Saul was active in in this particular moment was his, his persecution of Christ and persecution of the church. The same is true in all of our lives. Jesus is the one who comes and gets you and I. He is the one who is proactive in pursuing and chasing us down. And yet, isn't that what's so beautiful in such a, in maybe an odd way in this story? I mean, Saul, Saul couldn't be any further from Jesus at this particular point in time. And yet this is exactly where Christ intervenes. Right? Not when Saul was at his best, not when Saul had it all put together, but when he was proactively pursuing to undo Christ in the church, it's in that where Jesus shows up. And see, that's, that's the beauty for all of us. That it's not about being good enough, it's not about being worthy enough, it's not about trying harder. It's in fact what Saul would go on later as Paul to write in the book of Romans that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Right, not when I had it all together. Right? Jesus showing up in Paul's lowest moment. You ever felt like Jesus shows up in your lowest moment? Right, maybe sometimes it's like, no, no, you should have come yesterday, God, because I had it all put together yesterday. Right? You're really just appealing to the fact that you want to earn it or somehow that it's dependent upon you. And it's not. It's not. It's dependent solely upon Jesus and who he is. And here Christ revealing himself uh, to Saul. One other thing about this here before we move on. Don't, don't, miss, don't miss the fact that 
at this particular point in time, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that Saul is probably the furthest candidate possible to get saved, right? I mean, I, I can't think of someone who's further away from salvation than this guy was at this particular moment. Maybe you can think of some people like that in your own life. Maybe you can think of a friend or a family member, a coworker, a loved one of uh, some type that you're going, there's just no way they're getting saved. And I would just encourage you from the very words of God that, I mean, can you get any further than this guy was? And had, had you rewound the tape five seconds before Jesus showed up, there's no way this guy's getting saved. There's just no way. But when Jesus Christ shows up, hearts are changed and lives are radically transformed. Amen? Okay? And so, so for some of you, be encouraged by this. Don't give up, loved ones. Don't lose hope. Uh, God is at work and we don't know when. We don't know when uh, he's going to intervene. An instrument of God accepts the call to follow Jesus' revelation. That's really the starting point for, uh, for all of us is understanding that. And really, it, it, it plays into what we see next here in verses 6 and following. An instrument of God not only accepts the call to follow Jesus' revelation, but also accepts the call uh, to follow Jesus' command. In verse 6, uh, Jesus gives Paul a very simple command. He says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And Luke tells us a little bit about those who were with uh, Saul. He says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Whether or not they saw the light, we're not sure. Some believe they did, some believe they didn't. We don't know entirely. Uh, That's not really Luke's emphasis. He's really telling us about Saul and his conversion. And specifically, Christ's command to him that I'm going to follow not only who Jesus says he is, but what he calls and commands me to be and do. And so verse 6, rise into the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Now see, it's decision time for Saul. It's decision time right here. Because the very one that he hates, the very one that he came to persecute, all those people that he's against is now telling him, hey, I want you to go do this. And he's got a decision. He's got a choice to make. I can do what Jesus is calling me to, or I can walk away from this and, and, and just harden myself even further to what Christ is calling of me. So notice right here, Christ in this engagement, he's not, he's not passive. Uh, he's very much proactive. He's the initiator. He's the one who moves towards us. And Christ, in being proactive, is moving towards us because he wants us to respond in kind, to move close to him, to, 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 to respond to his command in moving near to him. And so look at verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And here in verse 8, we see uh, Saul's first step uh, to radical life change. Um, Now, can we all admit, can we just all be honest and admit that the first step, uh, the first step to obedience, the first step to change is always the hardest? Right, that's always the hardest. The first step's always the hardest. And Saul here making this first step, I'm going to do just the the first thing that God is calling me uh, to do. And the reality, uh, the reality is, is that every single person sitting in this room right now Uh, Christ has a command that's out in front of you. Every single one of you has something that's sitting in front of you right now that Jesus is is calling you to, commanding of you uh, at this particular point in your life. Uh, For some of you, for some of you, uh, it's what we were just talking about. It's the revelation of Jesus. That for the first time, you would come to the place where you recognize and realize that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. That you are a sinner that has rejected and rebelled against God's ways. And that the only way that you will spend eternity with Christ in paradise is through Jesus and his death in your place and in my place. And so for some of you, for some of you, maybe that's brand new. Maybe you've never heard that. Uh, Maybe you've heard it before, but nah, whatever. That's not for me. I'm not about that. And needing to hear that. And maybe even here right now in this moment in your heart of hearts between yourself and the Lord where you would just quietly say, God, that's me. God, that's me. I've, I've, I've rejected you. I've rebelled against you. I've done things my way, not your way. And it's time to change. For some of you, that's the command that's in front of you right now. And the choice to follow or to reject that. 
Uh, for others of you, you've, you've embraced that command. That, that's not the command that's in front of you. But for others of you, there's, uh, there's some other element in your life. Maybe some change, something that God's calling to you, uh, calling you to. Uh, maybe something in your job. Some change that he's calling you to there. Maybe something in your family. A conversation that needs to happen. A decision that needs to be made. Some crisis that has to be dealt with. Uh, maybe it's your lifestyle. God's calling you to give or to sacrifice or to walk away from something or to move towards something. Maybe there's a particular behavior in your life. We go on and on and on. The reality is every single one of us in this room has a particular command that Jesus is calling us to here this morning. That's not the issue. The issue is are we going to follow? Am I going to obey that command? Am I going to do the thing that God is putting before me? Am I going to follow his command? See, an instrument of God accepts the call to follow. An instrument can do nothing on its own. It's only effective in the hands of its master. And to follow, to follow is to place ourselves in the hands of God, to surrender our um, uh, maybe delusional thought of autonomy, to surrender that and to place ourselves back into the hands of Christ and say, you're in charge. I'm going to let you do what only you can do. An instrument of God accepts the call to follow. So Paul rolls into Damascus, tells us in verse 9, for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. And now Luke moves away from that and begins to tell us kind of a different scene about another individual here. Here's the second thing we see about an instrument of God in verses 10 through 19. We see it in the person of Ananias. Uh, An instrument of God makes the choice to obey. Uh, Not only am I going to follow, but I'm going to obey. And uh, notice this, uh, first of all, look at verse 10. Luke here, the first part of verse 10, introduces us to Ananias. He says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And then we see the second part of verse 10, and it could be just so innocuous, so uh, uh, irrelevant, and yet I think there's an incredible depth here. Look at what Luke says. He says, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, right? God's calling him Ananias. And notice Ananias' response. And he said, here I am, Lord. See, part of an instrument of God making the choice to obey is a readiness to obey. See, Ananias was ready. He was ready to obey. It was almost as if he was anticipating that God was going to say something, that God was going to speak, that that God was going to call him to something. He's living a life that was steeped in the presence of God, in, in surrender and following after him. He wasn't living as if, well, just, you know, whenever God says something, then we'll deal with it from there. No, he's making preparation, steeped in the presence of God, knowing that a day is coming, a day is coming when God's going to call him to something. See, he was ready. Are you ready to hear what God has for you? Do you, do you remember do you remember that parable in Matthew 25 where Jesus tells us about the ten virgins and, and the oil for their lamps? And uh, they, they were told, be ready, be ready. And of course, the, uh, that, that parable is talking about the return of Christ, but the principle is the same in that. Right? Some were prepared and they, they grabbed little flasks of oil and, and, and took it with them. And others weren't. And what happened? The bridegroom showed up and some were scrambling and then some were ready. Those who were ready went in with Jesus. Those who weren't missed out on it. Now, that's, right, he's speaking about the return of Christ, but it's really a reflection of how we live our lives. Right? Am, am I ready? Am I prepared? Am, am I living a life that, that's making preparation for what God will call me to? And do I recognize and see the different ways that God is moving me towards that place of preparation? See, one of the, one of the conversations that happens a lot in the McDonald household, because we have four young kids, is around the issue of obedience. Okay? And um, the, fir- the first part of the conversation is God tells you to obey your parents, so that's sufficient. Okay? So get that. But then the second part of the conversation looks something like this, and I love to tell our kids this. God wants you to learn to obey your mom and dad today. Because whether it's tomorrow, whether it's next week, next month, next year, next decade, it's not going to be mom and dad telling you to do something. It's going to be God who's telling you to do something. And if you haven't learned to obey mom and dad, you're not going to obey God when he comes and calls you to do something. Now, loved ones, the same is true in our life. If you're not learning, if you're not preparing, if you're not making yourself ready for obedience, God's going to show up, he's going to call you to something, and you're going to be scrambling, you're going to be left behind, and you're just going to flat out miss it. 
Are you ready? Are you ready to obey? And okay, here's maybe a good question. What steps, what, what, what steps are you doing to make preparation to be obedient to what God is calling you to do? And some of you are like, uh, nothing. I didn't even think about that. Um, Mike, I'm, I'm hoping this is where you lay out some steps for us uh, that you can fill that out for us. Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, I've got three things here. Okay. Uh, here, here are three ways, and, and you're going to hear these, and you're going to be like, seriously, that's the most simplistic thing ever, and that's the point. See, preparation for obedience really is easy. It really is. It's just sometimes we need to be reminded of these truths. Here's the first. Okay, three steps, three ways to be uh, ready for obedience. The first is this, is that we would simply know him. That you would know God. Like, really? Like, what? That's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know it is, but I'm not talking about knowing about God. I'm talking about knowing him personally, relationally. We talked last week about living in the presence of God, recognizing the nearness of God. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I've never met the guy. See, some of us are like that spiritually. We know a whole lot about God, but it's not like we really ever spend any time relationally with him. That we would know him we would know him personally. We would know him relationally. Of course, in order to do that, you have to be with him. I have to spend time with him. You have to be intentional and deliberate. If I don't spend time with my wife, now we, we don't know each other. If I don't spend time with my kids, we don't know each other. If I don't spend time with God, we don't know each other. And as we spend time with God, we really begin to learn God's heart and begins to prepare us. This is the thing. These are the things that God's really after. These are the things that he's about, that he wants beginning to see his heart. We have to know him. Uh, second of all, we have to be willing to walk with him. We have to be willing to walk with him, right? Are you, are you willing to go with him? Are you willing to go wherever God is going? Are you willing to move wherever God is moving you? I mean, in, in, inherent in the concept of obedience is this uh, response to a command. And in a moment, Ananias is going to be given a command. In fact, it's kind of a crazy a command that he's going to get, at least from his perspective. But am I willing to go where God's leading me? Am I willing to go where God is moving? Now, a couple weeks ago, Becky and I were in <clears throat> Flagstaff, and I had the privilege of preaching at our old church, and, and there was a, a point probably about halfway through the message. And I'm looking out, and you know, I, I can see my brother and my parents and Becky's parents and peop, some people that I've known since I was like, uh, you know, my kid's age and all this stuff. And there's this, this specific moment and this point in time that was such great clarity. I was like, it's great to be here, but it's not where we belong. Because God reminded, no, don't, we're not going anywhere, all right? But, but, but God, see, what, what God reminded me of in that moment was, I moved you out of here. Remember when you walked with me uh, to this place? But see, then what he followed up with right after was, you got to keep coming back to that, Mike. You got to keep coming back. That's not a one-time decision. Okay, I was obedient here. And now I can just coast. No, you got to keep coming back to that decision. Okay, I was willing to do it then. And avoid the mistake, avoid the tendency of living uh, on the benefit and on the heels of past faithfulness. That life gets stale in a hurry. Uh, move to the place where there's a fresh and new and vibrant faithfulness. God, I'm going to walk with you today. I'm going to do the things that you're calling me to today, right now, right in front of me. I'm going to do that. Preparation for obedience. I'm going to walk with him. And then finally, this one. I mean, this, this is pretty complex, pretty difficult. Maybe we'll surprise you. Okay, not really. It's about as easy as it gets. Just obey him. Like, do it. I mean, just do it. All right. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually do it. Am I willing to do what God calls me to do? And like I said, in a moment, uh, we'll see where the Lord gives Ananias, uh, honestly, was a pretty crazy assignment. And he doesn't. See, he's willing to do it. He's willing to obey. He's willing uh, to follow because he's been steeping himself in this preparation, in this readiness of God. When you call, I will respond to what you call me to. Now, I want to I pause right here. 
And, and, and I want us to just consider these three things, to know him, to walk with him, and to obey him. Uh, because my sense for all of us, at some level, at least one of those things, I don't know about you, for me, I've been wrestling with all three of those this week, where, where we want a moment to really um, let that sit uh, in our hearts and in our souls. And so what we're going to do, we're going to come to the communion table right now, right in the middle of the message. Okay, And as we do this, I want you to just begin to prepare your heart around these items. And just asking and, and, and going before the Lord, God, do, do I really know you? And, and am I pursuing that in you? Or am I just fulfilling some religious checklist to say, well, I read my Bible, I prayed or whatever, and now you owe me something. Getting after the heart of God, the person of God. God, am I walking with you? I'm actually walking with you, going where you're going, staying where you're staying, moving where you're moving, doing those things. Am I obeying you? Talk is cheap. Anyone can say it. But am I doing it? And so in a moment, I'll release you to come to the communion table at Faith Church. We practice what we call open communion, which means you don't have to be a member. You just have to be a follower of Jesus because God's word tells us that you need to be a follower of Jesus uh, to participate in communion. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the, easy way, the easiest way to fix that is just between yourself and the Lord. Uh, right now in your heart of hearts, change that and say, God, I'm done following myself. I'm going to follow you. And uh, uh, so if you're a follower, uh, we'd invite you to come. We have a gluten-free option uh, up front. And I'd ask you to grab the elements and then take them back to your seat. Hold on to them. We'll partake together here in a moment. We have three tables up front, two in the back. And uh, so I want you to go ahead and move to one of those tables, grab the elements, uh, return to your seat, uh, and really wrestle through these items that are up here on the screen right now. So let's come. All right, coming back to uh, Acts 9. An instrument of God makes the choice to obey. There's a readiness to obey. And then notice this. Uh, secondly, uh, verse 11 uh, and following. If you're going to obey, a command has to be given. There's got to be something that you obey. And so a command is given here. And so notice this, the specific command. Uh, the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, I'm willing to bet at this particular point in time that all the blood rushed out of Ananias' face, and he went, um, You can't possibly be serious, God. You want me to go to that guy? And of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice what he goes on and he says, tells us about Saul, for behold, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Maybe for a fleeting moment, Ananias thought, well, you better find another Ananias because I'm not going, all right? Um, But a command is given, a very clear command. And sometimes, sometimes people will read this, and maybe even as we were reading this, you go, "Why, why doesn't God speak to me like that? Why doesn't God make it so clear? Why doesn't God make it so obvious in my life? Why won't God just come say, hey, go do this? Well, I would just encourage you to look back at verse 10. Right? The, the readiness, the conditioning, the preparation. See, what we miss in verse 10 was that Ananias repeatedly, time and again, and consistently did the simple thing. He did the simple thing. And after, when you do the simple thing, you do that enough, then God begins to give you the specific thing and he gives you the substantial thing. But God's not going to give you some big, substantial, specific, hey, go do this great thing if you won't do the simple thing. Right? I mean, like, God's not a fool. I mean, that's a stewardship issue. You can't handle this, but yet you want me to entrust to you all of this? Like, come on. It's not going to happen. The command is given. And of course, because he had done the simple thing, now he gets the substantial uh, responsibility. So Ananias, um, he's going to help God out a little bit here. Uh, Verse 13, Ananias answered, "Uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. I think this is kind of a, hey, just in case you uh, missed this, God, if you weren't aware of this guy, uh, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, Ananias isn't a fool either. He knows who Saul is. He knows uh, what this could cost him. He knows uh, what God could require of him or what, what this might mean for him. 
And yet very clearly we can see from the text that the fear really isn't the issue, is it? Obedience is the issue. That's the issue that Jesus is after. In fact, so much so Jesus doesn't even speak to uh, the issue of fear. The only thing that Jesus gets at is the issue of obedience. Because Jesus understands that's really the only thing that's at play here. It's about obedience and, and a willingness to follow the command. If, he, 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 and so, are you willing to follow? And it's one thing to follow when it's easy or it looks good or it sounds fun or it's very appealing, but what, what about when it's hard? What about when it's scary? What about when it's difficult? What about when I don't want to? What about when I feel inadequate? See, the issue is obedience and a willingness to be an instrument. Um... Should you be someone who finds yourself in the place where you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure that that's for me. I have some bad news for you because Jesus doesn't take no for an answer. Look at verse 15. Uh, but the Lord said to him, okay, what's that first word he says? Tell me. Go. Go. Right? I mean, can, can you see this? Ananias is like, okay, well, you know, I've heard from many about this guy and what he does to your saints and, and, and all the things that, that he's been given the power to do here. And can't you see, like, Jesus? He's like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Go. Great, I don't care. Go. I mean, he just, he just doesn't even acknowledge any of that. See, because it's not about fear. It's about obedience and a willingness to go. And then Jesus, because I think because he's just kind and gracious, he gives Ananias some insight. He could have just said go and that would have been it, but he tells him why. He says, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's like, because I'm going to use this guy. That's why. Because I got great plans for someone that you couldn't possibly fathom that I could use. And that's why I want you to go. Because Ananias, in the same way that I'm going to use Saul to do something, I'm going to use you to do something. I love ones, that same principle is true for you and I. In the same way that God used Saul, in the same way that he used Ananias, he wants to use you and I. Now, the specific ways, the specific ways that he's going to do that are going to look different. For Saul, he was pretty clear, um, you're, you're going to carry my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. That's a pretty sweet commission. Pretty much every person on the earth and royalty. All right? Anyone ever stood before royalty? Like, true royalty? Anyone? Okay, maybe a couple of you. Yeah, I can't. I can't say that I have. I don't really anticipate that'll ever happen in my life. Um, but Saul, was, that was part of his commission. You're saying before kings, man. And some of you, some of you, maybe that's part of the commission that God has for you. But for all of us, all of us, all of us, the specific play, uh, the specific way that the commission plays out uh, looks different. But the principle that we're all instruments that are going to be used for a specific task it's universal. It's like I've chosen him for this thing. The same way Ananias said, I've chosen you to go and to pray for him. And God help us, God help us that whatever the specific call, the specific command, the specific commission that God has in your life, that we'd be willing to follow that. So notice Ananias here in verses 17 through 19. We see the command accepted. The command is accepted. Ananias, verse 17, Ananias departed. Who knows, right? Who knows what was going through his mind as he's on the way, what he's thinking, feeling. Um, probably a pretty good chance there was some fear and anxiety. And laying his hands on him, he said, now check out what he says. Brother Saul. Isn't that phenomenal? Brother Saul. I think, the, I think the only reason he says that, I think it has nothing to do with Saul. I think it has everything to do that he trusts the character and the nature of God. Because God has said this, I'll believe it, even when I can't see it or I haven't seen it. So he rolls in, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he, rose, then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Right? God used Ananias uh, to play a pretty substantial role in the life of uh, a guy who you could say has had one of the most influential ministries of anyone that's ever walked the face of the earth save uh, maybe Jesus alone. But a command accepted. A command accepted. 
Uh, who knows what he thought? Who knows how he felt? Who knows what was going on in his mind, if he did it gladly or fearfully? Here's what we know about Ananias here. We know that the thought of disobeying God, that the weight of that was greater to him than any possible consequence that could have come from it. So he was willing to follow. Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to embrace the command? Maybe going, Mike, I, I am, I am. I, I, I want to come back to the place where I just simply put myself back in the hands of God. But I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Where would I start with that? Start with the simple thing. You just do the simple thing. You, you get to where you know the Lord. You get to where you're willing to walk with him wherever he's going. And then you obey whatever it is that he calls you to. And then you wait for the substantial because no doubt, no doubt, it'll come. If you'll do the simple thing, the, the substantial thing uh, will follow. An instrument of God, an instrument of God, it accepts the call to follow, it makes the choice to obey. Here's the final thing. Uh, verses 19 through 30, we see an instrument of God experiences ministry fruitfulness. An instrument that's used by God is going to experience ministry fruitfulness. Now it's going to look different for each of us. And, and even how we measure ministry fruitfulness, I think there's a lot of ways that we can redefine what ministry fruitfulness is. We've got uh, some ways and methods in our current way of thinking that I'm not sure are necessarily biblical. I don't know that they're wrong, uh, but I don't know that they're the best way to measure uh, true fruitfulness. But notice there's two things, two things specifically that show up in the last part of, 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 of uh, this engagement of Saul uh, here and, and really for all of us that, that we would see these, that we would um, attempt to uh, do these things and allow them to be uh, a part of how God uses us. Look at verse 19 and following. <clears throat> for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. You want to talk about coming full circle, right? I'm going there to arrest them. I love the irony in this. Paul became the very person he hated. Don't you love that? Like the very person he was out to do away with, he became. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Okay, that's hilarious. He's in there proclaiming the gospel. And so notice, right, the, the, the response. I mean, th th this is a pretty obvious response. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? It's like, like, what is going on here? Then Luke tells us, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, he proclaimed the gospel. He went back to the place where it's like, you know, I just, just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I have to share what Christ has done in my life. A proclamation of the gospel. And that's what Jesus told us, right? Back in verse 15. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to kings. Like he's doing the very thing that God said that he would do. And if we think bigger picture of the whole of the book of Acts, right? We, we, we think of uh, back in Acts 1-8, that you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, what, what Luke wants to draw the reader back to is, hey, listen, what Saul's doing is what we all should be doing, simply proclaiming the gospel. That's, that, that's it, that, that you and I are to share. That we're, we're just telling people about the Savior that's come. Nothing more, nothing less. And as we right, you think of Christmas time, we think of celebrating literally God with us, right? Emmanuel, we celebrate that Jesus has come. It's a great time to tell people. Hey, um, kind of a big season for us. Pretty fired up about Christmas. Here's why. Right, because one of our primary callings, primary responsibilities to proclaim the gospel, to share. That's, that's our job. That's what you and I do. What happens in the heart of the hearer is between the hearer and God. That's off your shoulders. That's off my shoulders. That's on God's shoulders and that's on their shoulders. But let me tell you what's on our shoulders. What's between us and God is whether or not we're sharing. And so an instrument of God experiences ministry fruitfulness in the proclamation of the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, you know what, if they don't get saved, it doesn't count. No, 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 loved ones. That's not, our, that's not our business. Our business is to share the gospel. That, that, that's where our responsibility ends. That has to be seen as ministry fruitfulness when we get that opportunity. Amen? 
All right. So a proclamation of the gospel. Uh, verse 23 and 24. Um, uh, check this out. When many days had passed, uh, here comes the first of a number of plots uh, on Paul's life. The Jews plotted to kill him. Uh, he was going to take them and kill them, and now he is with them, and the Jews want to kill him. Uh, there's a lot of full circle uh, playing out here in this passage. Their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket. So we believe at this point in time in Galatians 1, Paul talks about being away for three years. We believe this is when he was away for three years, in between verse 25 and verse 26. Now Luke doesn't really seem interested in that. That's just kind of to help you frame the chronology here. But verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, keep in mind it's been three years, he attempted to join the disciples. Check this out. They were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. No, 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 no. I'm not falling for that. I know that trick. I know what you're up to. This is some kind of scam. It's, it, it, it's a prank. It's a ploy. And if I'm not careful, it's going to blow up on me. So they wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, my dad tells this story about a good friend of his, a guy named Tommy Eckmeyer. And uh, probably none of you have ever met Tommy. And uh, if the story I would tell is about the furthest uh, from who Tommy is today, but uh, Tommy definitely did not grow up knowing Jesus uh, and proved it regularly. And uh, neither did my dad. And uh, so <clears throat> just to give you an idea of just how cruel and mean Tommy was, he had one of those, uh, those old school vans where you had like the front cab and then the whole thing was separated in the back. And so I, I have no idea how he would do this, but he would... He would catch a skunk, stick it in the back of the van, and then he would drive around town late at night picking up drunks, sticking them in the back of the van and driving off. And so you can imagine as a drunk, the dilemma you're faced with is I'm in a confined space with a skunk and I'm in a moving vehicle. And maybe, maybe if nothing else, that's a lesson to drink responsibly. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> but I mean, stuff like this all the time. I mean, this is who this guy was constantly. And so one day someone tells my dad, hey, did you hear about Tommy? And he's like, no. And he's like, he got saved. And my dad just started busting up laughing. Because like, this is another prank. He's going to pull another prank. This is going to be a great one. And, and it was, for, for whatever reason, it was probably a week to 10 days before my dad actually saw Tommy again. He kept hearing from people, Tommy got saved, man. Tom, well, it was Tommy got religion. That was the phrase that they used. Tommy got religion. Tommy got religion. And then my dad saw him. I said, man, the moment I saw him, he didn't have to say a word. I could look in his eyes and I could tell that he was radically transformed. I think there were a number of people in Jerusalem that had a similar experience with the Apostle Paul. And they're like, no way, no way, no way. That guy is not the same. But let me focus in on verse 27 here because I think, I think there's a real challenge for us when we consider verse 26 and being conservative and what we see in verse 27 with Barnabas. They were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. We want nothing to do with him. We won't touch that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road how he had seen the Lord and spoke to him, uh, how, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. See, the, the, there's two things that I want us to be challenged by here in verse 27. Here's the first, just briefly, uh, that we all need discipleship. Okay, we all need it. No one's above it. No one's below it. We all desperately need it. And uh, Faith Church, we're pretty unapologetic about telling people, if you're here, you should find yourself in a discipling ministry. And if, if you're not in a discipling ministry, my question to you would be, why not? Why not? Um, I don't need it uh, certainly isn't uh, a good answer. It's definitely not a biblical answer. We all desperately need it. I mean, the guy who wrote a substantial portion of the New Testament very much needed a discipleship. In fact, uh, at the very end of his ministry, here's what he told uh, Timothy, a younger pastor. Uh, if there's ever a plea for discipleship in the scriptures, it comes out of 2 Timothy 2.2 2, when Paul said this. He said, which, which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The end game of his ministry was that phrase. Keep passing it on, on both sides. We all need discipleship. But here's the second thing, and really I think the, uh, the item where I want for some of you to really be challenged by. 
when we, when we consider this engagement in discipleship, Barnabas took a great risk. He took a huge risk. A risk for his own well-being, a risk um, for the, uh, the apostles and the disciples. Man, he put it all on the line for the sake of the gospel. There are a number of people, I'm looking out in this room, and I'm looking at a number of people who have a whole lot to offer uh, others, maybe uh, young believers, uh, immature believers, uh, people who maybe aren't even quite yet believers. And I think for far too many of us, we're afraid to take the risk. We're afraid to jump in. I don't want to get burned. I don't want it to blow up on me. I don't want this to go south. What happens if Barnabas doesn't take a risk here? Now, I fully trust the sovereignty of God. I think it would have worked out, but I think it would have looked differently. And I wonder for how many of us, for how many of us are we passing on something substantial that God wants to do in someone's life, maybe in someone else's life, and sometimes in our own life because we're unwilling to take a risk. And this engagement in discipleship, loved ones, we've got to come to the place where we quit playing it safe and let's be willing to step out a little bit. I mean, do we trust God? Do we trust him? Okay, let me ask that not rhetorically. I want you to respond to that. Do we trust God? Yeah, okay. So if we can trust God, um, I don't know about you, no one in this room has had a vision to go down to a guy uh, who is persecuting and murdering Christians. Anyone have, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you had a similar experience. I haven't had that experience yet. And yet God used Ananias uh, to speak into um, one of the most prominent men in all of Christendom. Can we not trust him? And so I want you to just consider what risk, what risk is God calling you to here this morning? When it comes to discipleship, when it comes to speaking into someone's life, when it comes to, to, to walking with someone, what risk is God calling you to? Or what have you been avoiding because you've been afraid of stepping out? Right? If we trust God, if we trust God, we trust the fact that we're placed in His hands, that we're an instrument. It's not on us, it's on Him all we're doing is simply placing ourselves in God's hands. What we're allowing him to do is to use us and to play us in a way that's fitting and right for him. An instrument, an instrument is only as good as the one who uses it. So whose hands are you placing yourself in? Let's pray.